0: on the fellowship hall in a few minutes, throughout our days, the three-mile tread that most of us wear in this town, and to all the earth abroad, the honors of thy name. Come teach us now, Lord, not how to thunder the Bible from pulpits or to teach it from a lectern, but rather how to counsel Scripture how to converse scripture, how to do soul care after the model of the great soul physician, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our view of the Bible ultimately emerges in what we do with the Bible. You believe that? You should. It's true. (laughs) Let's make it personal. Your view of the Bible ultimately emerges in what you do with the Bible. The Pharisees and scribes of first century Judaism are our classic illustrations that it is entirely possible to know lots and lots of Scripture and yet fail to glorify God with our lives. Jesus said... To the conservative Bible believers of his day You search the scriptures Because you suppose that in them you have eternal life And it is they that testify to me And yet you refuse to come to me To have that life John five thirty nine and 40 My Bible has 1,042 pages I don't know how many years have Mine's got 1,042. And every single one of them bears witness to one name. The name that is above every name. The name at the sound of which every demon shudders. The name before whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father and one day soon. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. King Jesus. King Jesus. Maranatha, our Lord, come. The Bible is comprised of pages, and the pages point to a person, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, this is week six of our 2015 uh, Winter and Spring Sermon Series. The sermon series is entitled Competent to Counsel, a Biblical Vision for Soul Care in the Local Church. And if you're joining us for the first time today, I have the happy responsibility to inform you that, contrary to what you might imagine uh, you've come on the perfect Sunday. We are six weeks deep into the sermon series, but we have built intentional on-ramps to the series throughout, and you've, you've come on one of those Sundays. You can hop on to the highway today. For five weeks now, we've considered how we as Christians ought to think about this thing called counseling. And by the way, again, if the word counseling freaks you out, then just, just use the phrase, conversations that really matter. That's what counsel, That's my definition of counseling these days: conversations that really matter, that are going somewhere. Counseling is having conversations that really matter. You might say uh, it's applying the Bible to everyday life. Here's another thing we're trying to do with this sermon series: applying the Bible to everyday life, especially when life gets messy, especially through suffering and sinning. Are you interested in counseling yet? Me too. So soul care, counseling, spiritual direction, whatever you want to call it, over the last month or so, our aim, if not our achievement, has been to understand what God says about how to be people in need of change, helping people in need of change. That's another great definition of counseling. That is not mine. It comes from the pen of Paul Tripp. Counseling is people in need of change, helping people in need of change. That's also a pretty good definition of the church, by the way. What's a church? It ain't a building, friends. The church is people in need of change, helping people in need of change. So it's not awkward. It's perfectly fitting that we would spend some time talking about counseling. We're a church, right? Right? So let's be about two things in this sermon series. First, let's restore Christ to counseling. And secondly, let's restore counseling to the church. Now, if you like that, I can't claim that one either. I took that phrase from another organization uh, for whom Paul Tripp used to work, the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, CCEF in Philadelphia. CCEF produces most of the booklets that we have in Fellowship Hall that we hope that you've benefited from. CCEF's mission is restoring Christ to counseling and counseling to the church. That's what we're trying to do with this sermon series. You say, well, what are our convictions about counseling? Allow me to flag at least four of our values regarding the care of souls here at Mount Free Church. Number one, God's world allows us to observe the condition of our souls, but only God's word offers us the cure for our souls. Number two, beware the poverty of the secular psychologies and believe in the richness of Christ-centered soul care. Three, let us never settle for merely preaching Jesus Christ. We must press on to counsel him. Fourth, the human heart is deceitful and desperately sick. But the grace of God and the gospel of Christ can change that. So those are a handful of our emerging convictions about counseling here at Mount Free Church. There's more we can say, but let's not say less than that. These convictions are gold. They will serve us very well into the days ahead. You have to know how I feel about those four sentences. I prize those convictions more highly than anything I own. That's true. You can burn my house down anytime. Don't tell my wife that but don't take these convictions from me. I commend those convictions to you. They're of great price to me. I want these convictions to become your convictions if they're not already. They are precious pearls, which is why I want to say to you this. Your convictions about biblical counseling are worthless to others until you begin to develop your competencies. Your convictions about biblical counseling are worthless to others until you begin to develop your competencies. Remember, our view of the Bible ultimately emerges in what we do with the Bible. Like the Pharisees of old, it's entirely possible to know lots of Scripture and not not glorify God. And if it's possible to be a first-century Jewish leader and go to hell with lots of Bible rolling around in your head, imagine how easy it is for a 21st century American evangelical who knows 95% less Bible than your average Jew in the first century. Imagine how easy it is for an American evangelical to go to hell. That's a crushing thought. And if you ask, well, how much Bible do you have to know, in order to begin to make a difference in people's lives? Answer, not much. Not much. Listen to the words of John Piper. I have some friends who heard him say this in person 15 years ago. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know a few great things that matter and be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few great things. You have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them, end quote. Please listen to me. Biblical counseling is not about how much of God's word is in your head Rather, biblical counseling is about how much of God's word is in your heart. Amen? Because the wonderful counselor himself once said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Luke 6.45. Believe it. Your convictions about biblical counseling, though, are worthless until you begin to develop your competencies. So I have five things I want to say about counseling this morning. I've said them before. They're not new. They're just true. If you're going to love saints, sufferers, and sinners with gospel-saturated soul care, you must, I'll give you all the blanks at once and then we'll unpack them, you must seek to understand them. Labor to appreciate them. Come to empathize with them. Confess you're a lot like them. And offer God's word to them. If you're going to love saints, sufferers, and sinners with gospel-saturated soul care, you must seek to understand them, labor to appreciate them, come to empathize with them, confess you're a whole lot like them, and offer God's word to them. So in the time that remains this morning, my aim is to introduce and to briefly unpack these five principles We as a church, by God's grace, are going to become very familiar with these five principles in the weeks ahead, I assure you. Well, let's begin to get acquainted with them anyway. If you're going to love saints, sufferers, and sinners with gospel-saturated soul care, first you must, number one, seek to understand them. Seek to understand them. You might ask how this first step in the practice of biblical counseling is uniquely Christian. I'm going to ask the question this way: Did Jesus seek to understand people and their problems? Answer: No. He didn't have to. He already knew them. John two twenty four to twenty five says Jesus knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. See, Jesus doesn't have a particular angle on wisdom; he is wisdom. He knows everything. Can you even fathom what it'll be look, to look like in his eyes one day? If you're a Christian one day, you'll look into his eyes. And those eyes will go all the way down into every square inch of your soul. He fully knows you. And wonder of all wonders, he fully loves you. Now, I'm not like Jesus on this front. You say, on this front. I'm not like Jesus. Um... I like to think I know people, but I'm more naive than I like to admit. I flatter myself. In a movie I viewed during my pre-Christian days, uh, Pretty Woman, starring Julia Roberts and Richard Gere, there's a moment in their dialogue when Richard Gere says to Julia Roberts, it's just that very few people surprise me. To which Julia Roberts responds Yeah, well you're lucky Most of them shocked the heck out of me Only she didn't say heck When it comes to other people's lives I identify with Julia Roberts Most people Shocked the heck out of me Now, they shouldn't Right? But when you're counseling another person You need a good poker face You really do You shouldn't need one because you're just as messed up as they are, if not more. And if they're being honest with you, you are going to hear and see some wild stuff as they begin to share who they are. If you're seeking to understand them, you will. Now, the ultimate goal with people, of course, is to love them. To love them. Love your brother, love your neighbor, love your enemy. Love, love, love. But love is not biblical love if it is devoid of, of the knowledge of your beloved. I'll say it again. Love is not biblical love if it is devoid of the knowledge of the beloved. You see, what makes God's love so stunning is that he knows the world so thoroughly and loves it so exquisitely. D.A. Carson once said, the world in the Bible isn't a big place with lots of people in it. The world and the Bible is a bad place with lots of bad people in it. Amen? Check John's Gospel and 1 John just in case you doubt that. So God's knowledge of the world makes his love for the world so spectacular. God is not a naive lover of the world. So, 1 Corinthians 14.20, Paul says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. And why? Because like God, our knowledge of people is to be pressed into the service of love for those people. Once again, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 1 Corinthians 8.1 the point being is that what we have in our head can be lighter fluid for the flame of love in our hearts. That's what it can be. And if our brains about other people are empty, our love will be cheap and bargain basement. But if our knowledge is full, then our love stands the chance to become deep, comprehensive, wise and mature so to love another person well particularly in a counseling relationship that would be again a conversation with someone you know that's counseling then you really do have to get to know them you have to seek to understand them how do you do that? well it's like my 4th grade math teacher Mr. Caston, used to say smart kids ask questions which was a breath of fresh air to me because I stunk at math How do you get to know someone? Ask them questions. I assure you, people are fascinating. They really are. Get to know them by asking them questions. Here's a newsflash. People are surprising, and you're not Jesus. (laughs) Very few people may surprise Richard Gere. Most of them shocked the heck out of me. When I first meet someone, I know very little about them, and it is the height of presumption and a supreme display of my folly to pretend to know to know what they need before I understand them. Amen. My pastoral mentor Lee Eclov likes to say, "Wisdom doesn't have the blurts. It listens with questions." Proverbs eighteen thirteen says, "If one gives an answer before he hears, it's his folly and shame." Proverbs twenty verse five says, "The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, you ice fishermen, but a man of understanding will draw it out." Ask them questions, get to know them. Really, what's that like? Where'd you grow up? Tell me more about that, would you? I'm interested. Or, do you have any spiritual beliefs? And if they do, if they have a profession of faith in Christ, you can ask, how did you come to know the Lord?" Tell me the story. I'd love to know. I got nothing but time. Um, what was church like for you growing up? If they were raised in the church, maybe some broader questions. Just. Tell me what you do for a living. And and these days, maybe in this kind of economy, what keeps you busy during the week? That gives some dignity to the person you're talking to, just in case they're in between jobs. What keeps you busy during the week? What's it like to be married to somebody for that long? Tell me. What do you do on your day off? Those are just get-to-know-you type questions, but they're very helpful. But anybody can ask questions like that. They don't cost very much. If you're going to get to know somebody in a soul care capacity, you need to be familiar with at least three particular questions and then a fourth. If God greases the skids for the fourth, you're in good shape. These questions will assist you mightily in becoming of ultimate assistance to other people. So let's paint the scene. It's Saturday morning. You're at a bustling caribou coffee. It's about 8.32 a.m., and you're just getting to know her or him. Um, perhaps it's a fellow church member who's made a series of bad decisions. Could be a colleague from work who's not a believer. They know you are, and for some reason they trust you enough to, to bear their wound to you as a sole physician or a spiritual friend. That's a, quite a trust. Um, here are three questions, followed by a fourth, that you are well served to ask them and yourself considering their situation. Number one, how are you feeling? how are you feeling secondly what are you thinking what are you thinking third how are you behaving how are you behaving or if it's just like a a a thing that happened in their lives either a suffering or a sin that they have participated in that happened and then they want to get some input on that you might just ask those all in the past tense how did it make you feel What were you thinking? What did you do? What are you doing? Okay. Um, We ask these questions because people rarely ask them of themselves. These questions are questions that probe and investigate into people's lives. Most people have no one asking them these questions. Did you know that? Questions that attempt to help people get a sense of their emotions and their thought life and their activity, their behavior, they are very eye opening. And they can begin to open up a conversation. Now, when the time is right, when your friend has shared with you what they're thinking, feeling, or doing, then there's one more question. It's actually the first question Jesus asks in the Gospel of John. John one thirty eight What are you wanting? That's my translation. ESV has what are you seeking. In other words, this question, if you can discern the answer to it, you can expose the roots of the issue. Why? Because this question is a heart question. At the surface of all of our lives are our thoughts and our feelings and our behavior, and then way down deep, 20,000 leagues under the sea of your soul is what you want what you're craving your desires and your longings and your drives you're actually asking people about worship you don't usually phrase it that way because it goes over like a thud but eventually you should so they can see what's on the line that's precisely what you mean thoughts, emotions, behavior it's all good places to start and by the way that's where most secular psychology start and end thinking thinking feeling behaving 95% of secular psychology is that way the 5% i'm interested in is motivations malcolm gladwell is actually a guy that works at motivations and he's got some helpful things to say some helpful things so what we want why why do we think what we think and feel what we feel and do what we do because we want what we want And if you're really struggling to ascertain the idolatry in their heart, then when the time is right, go ahead and ask them this question. We've said this last week. What do you want so bad that you will sin in order to get it? Or just flip it around. What do you want so bad you'll sin if you don't get it? Typically, they will respond to you with a desire driven by one of the seven deadly sins. This will account for 99.9% of most counseling sessions. One of the seven deadly sins. What are those? Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, or lust. And unless the person's heart is harder than flint, they will feel ruthlessly exposed when you ask them that series of questions. And they must really trust you if they're going to go this far with you. They must love you. Or think that you might love them. But if you can get there, you've just uncovered an idol. Their heart is uncovered and unprotected before you. And by God's grace, you can begin to do some surgery. Now, it's mission critical because we want to exhibit the second competency. Labor to appreciate them. These next four points go in rapid succession, by the way. Labor to appreciate them. Labor to appreciate them. If you cannot, or most often will not do this, you're sicker than you think, and you're probably sicker than they are. It's probably one of my top five moments in the Gospels. Mark chapter 10. The rich young man has just informed Jesus that as far as the commandments go, all of these I have kept from my youth up. Did he have a straight face when he told Jesus that? Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? I believe the man did have a straight face. I think he was that self-deceived. He was an idiot. But he was sincere. Sincerely deluded. Heartfelt. Don't follow your heart. So Mark 10.20, the rich young man says to Jesus, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. In Mark 10.21, we have seven of the sweetest words in the Bible. You ready? Mark 10.21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He looked at him and he loved him. Then he crushed him with one thing you lack. Sell all you have, give to the poor and come follow me. But Mark 10, 21 is a gem. If I can be so bold, this is Jesus at his most enduring. Jesus looked into the eye of his counselee, and he didn't despise him, dismiss him, power up on him, roll his eyes at him. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Do you? Do I? Do you appreciate people? I mean, not just put up with them, appreciate them. Like Jesus appreciates you. You see, when a person is struggling in front of you, one of your great temptations is going to be to reduce them to their problem, and that's unloving. It's unbiblical. Psalm 8 verse 5 says, every human being on the face of the earth, this is true about them, you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. Psalm 139 verse 14 says that all people, all people are fearfully and wonderfully made. The person in front of you may have problems, but if you're a wise counselor, you will not reduce them to their problems. The person you're attempting to help may be enslaved to alcohol, but they're not an addiction. The person you're attempting to help may be any number of things, but they are not reducible to their problems. They are a person. And as we counsel others, we must labor to restore all proportion to our interactions with them. This is as much a gift to them as it is to you. When you do soul care, for example, always remember Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, as you are counseling people, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Right? Third, come to empathize with them. Come to empathize with them. By the way, these aren't steps. I need to take a little time out here. These aren't steps. Uh, Counseling another person is not an assembly line, like how they made Tonka trucks 50 years ago on the line. It's not like that. It's not like, first you come to understand them. Now that I understand them, now I will appreciate them. Now I'm going to seek to do what I can to empathize with them. (laughs) It's not like that. Life isn't like that. Your friend is going to unpack the luggage of their soul before you, and appreciating and empathizing with them is what your heart does to the degree that you love them. You know what empathy is? It literally means to feel with. It's closely related to another Greek word, compassion. Compassion means to suffer alongside. It's pain sharing. That's what empathy is. Biblical biblical counselor Bob Kellerman calls this crawling inside the casket with another person. There's an image. Will you do that? Most people won't. Jesus did. Matthew 9.36 says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Romans 12, 15, commands us, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Colossians three twelve again, commands us, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. When you counsel, when you live your life in this world, be kind. Everyone you meet is fighting a battle. Be kind lightly. One of my favorite songwriters is Michael Kelly Blanchard. In his song titled In From the Cold, he writes, I've been looking for a womb since the day I was born. Maybe I'm crazy, but give me the one who started as a baby without a home. I need a God who has been there and back, walking this sod with a cross on his back. Someone who's real when it comes to the soul, who knows what it feels to come in from the cold. In from the cold, out of the wind, surviving's as old as breathing. All of creation is your next of kin when you're out in the cold and you want to come in. Friends, there's a reason why people pay unbelieving therapists millions of dollars. There's a reason. All of creation's your next of kin. When you're out in the cold and you want to come in, let's not sell our birthright here. Nobody should go deeper and longer with people than the ever loving church of Jesus Christ. Amen? Short and shallow shouldn't describe churches, deep and long should. By the way, that song, poetry, now that we've mentioned something, music and poetry are powerful. They're powerful in your own heart as a counselor and they're powerful, even in the moment, with a counselee. Anyone who doubts this hasn't seen a Quentin Tarantino film. Not particularly edifying, but I have to admit that Stuck in the Middle with You by Steeler's Wheel has never sounded the same since 1994. Movie directors know the power of music in the human soul, and your friends do too. One time not long ago, I sat in between me and a friend in our church in the office with my iPhone, a friend who was struggling, and we listened to one of the sweetest black gospel songs ever written. It's called The Storm Is Passing Over by the Barrett Sisters. It's free on YouTube. The Storm Is Passing Over by the Barrett Sisters. The Storm is Passing Over. The Storm is Passing Over. The storm is passing over. Hallelujah. I was in a, a music a priest class 20 years ago when I first heard that as an unbeliever. And it rocked my soul. And then I found Jesus a year or two later. And he found me. So, um, by the way, as we listen to that song, the storm did pass over. It lifted in the room. Thanks to the Barrett sisters. So... When you when you give homework to someone that you love, say, "You know what? I challenge you. Do- download The Storm Is Passing Over by The Barrett Sisters and listen to it 7 times before I see you next time." Okay. Understand people appreciate people empathize with people. Fourth, almost done. Confess you're a lot like people. <laughs> Confess you're a lot like them. If you don't see yourself in the mirror of another person's suffering or sin, you're blind. You need to remove what Jesus would call the log in your eye. You need to remove that log before you can do effective eye surgery on the speck that's in your friend's eye. You'll be a dangerous surgeon if you don't. Now, this doesn't always mean that you confess all of your sufferings and sins in the counseling moment. In fact, most of your sufferings and sins don't need to come out of your mouth. They're going to be completely immaterial and unhelpful. Most of the time. However, the person that you're trying to care for does need to see you as profoundly human at this point. That's the difference. You may be counseling a widow or a depressed neighbor or an anxious coworker, or an addicted parent or a friend at school struggling with same-sex attraction or a bitter, angry acquaintance of some kind. 1 Corinthians 4 7 says, Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? At the end of the day, your sufferings and sins are not different in kind from the person you're trying to help, just in degree. You wonder if that's true. It is true. 1 Corinthians 10.13 reminds us that there's no temptation that's overtaken your friend that's not common to you. Okay. Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Your friend, as you begin to pull out the sword of Scripture from its sheath, they begin, begin to think, That you walk on water. And it's tempting to allow them to continue to believe that lie. It's very tempting. To thieve glory away from Jesus like that. But don't be flattered by that. Understand them, appreciate them, empathize with them. And then just confess you're a whole lot like them. One of my favorite moments of learning this was just about a year or so ago. Andy Kaler and I were at a conference uh, north side of Minneapolis, and Dr. Rob Green said, you know, when the counseling session is over, you guys can just switch seats. Just switch seats. And ask them, because you've got a big thing you need some help with, and just ask them. They might listen for a little bit, get their perspective on something. The best counselors are always counselees, always. Final point today. If you're going to love saints, sufferers, and sinners with gospel-saturated soul care, offer God's word to them. Offer God's word to them. Give them Jesus. Now there's a mountain of truth underneath each of these phrases, but I'm just going to say the phrases and then deliver the benediction. Tell them this. Can you get that far with people, these four steps? Tell them this. Jesus gets you. Tell them Jesus rescues you. Tell them Jesus satisfies you. And tell them Jesus equips you. We don't just counsel a theory. We counsel a person. The person and work of Jesus. We counsel a person who lived, died, and rose again and is soon to return for those who are eagerly waiting for him. Once they get a picture of who Jesus is, then begin to offer them what Jesus does. Offer them the pardon of Christ in the cross. Offer them the presence and power of Christ in the Holy Spirit. Offer them the pleasure of Christ to sweeten all their days. And offer them the people of Christ in the church, a community of counselors. Offer God's word to them. You say, tell me more about how to use the Bible like in everyday life and people's problems. I'm glad you asked that because next week that's where we're going to go. And this Lent, we're going to take a look at six different case studies. Let's not call them case studies. Let's just call them friends. Let's just call them us. Your convictions about biblical counseling are worthless to others until you begin to develop your competencies. If you're going to love saints, sinners, and sufferers with gospel-saturated soul care, you must seek to understand them. Labor to appreciate them. Come to empathize with them. Confess you're a whole lot like them and offer God's word to them. Next week, Lent begins, and so does the first of our six counseling sessions with a sermon entitled, How Long, O Lord, Counseling the Sufferer from Psalm 13. So what we'll do is we'll take this idea, these four principles, and then just drop that into Psalm 13. And talk about what it might look like to help somebody else out who's in a situation where they're suffering. Right now, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the patience of folks in this room. I pray that there might be some seeds of the word of God that escape the snare of the devil, that move past the rocky and thorny soil and lodge all the way down deep into good soil. And may we, Lord, as listeners and as preachers, Grab hold of what we know. May we hold on to it in an honest and good heart and produce fruit. May there be ripple effects from this understanding of soul care that transform our own hearts, our families, our neighborhoods, the West Tonka area, the West Metro, and this world. In Jesus' name, amen.